Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Ginny Kim Watson about her recent book, The New Asian City, Three-Dimensional Fictions of Space and Urban Form, and that came out in 2011 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, this is a book that's exceptionally rich. It's very thoughtful. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Ginny Kim Watson about her recent book, The New Asian City, Three-Dimensional Fictions of Space and Urban Form, and that came out in 2011 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, this is a book that's exceptionally rich. It's very thoughtful. Uh, it's very innovative, both theoretically and conceptually. In many, many ways, so much so that as you'll see um, in the course of our ensuing interview, we only got to talking about about half of the book in detail because so many of the chapters um, contain just so much to talk about. It's very transdisciplinary. It's a book that um, really looks at and approaches a comparative literature and a comparative history from a really different perspective than we typically see. It's a lateral comparison that looks at three different sites in East and Southeast Asia. Um, it's, it's very interesting, not just if you are the kind of person who likes to read and think about issues of post-colonial literature, development, urban literature, but also if you are the kind of person who is interested in thinking about, and I think we all are um, on some level, thinking about bodies in space, thinking about the ways that different kind of modes of living in a space, of occupying a room, of interacting with a building, of the the ways that urban and rural and interior and exterior spaces are produced by us, and how transformations in those spaces both change us, change our work, change the way we experience our lives, change the way we write, and produce different ways of engaging in writing, in fiction, in speaking with the world and with history. Um, it's extraordinarily inspiring um, from that perspective. And, and this is coming from somebody, um, myself, who works on a topic and on a set of problems that would seem from you know the first a first glance to have very little to do with the material in this book nonetheless i found it really really relevant um, in surprising ways to all kinds of uh, types of work that i'm doing right now and i say that as a way of recommending it to listeners because even if you are you don't think of yourself as somebody who works on or typically reads about urban history or post-colonial literature, there's a lot in the book that you might find extraordinarily good to think with. So I recommend it highly, um, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. I certainly did. 
Hi, Ginny. Hi, Kala. We're here today to talk with Ginny Kim Watson about her book, The New Asian City, Three-Dimensional Fictions of Space and Urban Form. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ginny, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Carlos. It's, it's a pleasure. Of course. So, Ginny, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you here? What got you interested in this kind of topic in general, and how did this uh, transform into the specific subject of the book? Okay, um, thanks. Thanks. That's a, a nice, easy one to start with. Um, well, in a, in a previous life, I actually started out as an architecture student. I have an undergraduate degree in architecture from the University of Melbourne um, before I switched to literature and cultural studies um, and more specifically, you know, focus on uh, East Asia. Uh, and I guess, you know, I always, I always had a... Um, uh, a real interest and love of architecture and cities that I never let go, even though I didn't become an architecture prof- uh, architect professionally. Um, so after having studied both architecture and literature at the undergraduate level in Australia, I ended up in the U.S. for graduate study. Um, and I actually didn't intend to do anything like this at all for my graduate work. Um, but as I, as I sort of joke to people, partly this book came about as a result of the fact that uh, where, when I was at Duke for my graduate study, there was only nine-month funding for the, for the program. Um, so every summer I was forced to travel somewhere. Uh, and being an international student from Australia, I couldn't work. Uh, so I was always sort of applying for whatever funding you know, trips there were. Uh, and the year before I started graduate school, I had lived uh, and taught in South Korea in Gwangju in the southwest. So I ended up going back there for a few summers. Uh, I also ended up going to Taiwan. Uh, And while in graduate school, I was uh, studying Korean and Chinese further. Uh, And so the project sort of came about partly fortuitously um, because of the fact that I simply had to to be somewhere else during the summers. Um, And also combining I guess my earlier interest in in architecture and uh, and sort of cities. Um, So it turned out you know, in in a way completely different from from what I thought I was going to the U.S. to study, which, believe it or not, was American literature in the in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so this did. Um, you mentioned just now, and you mentioned also at the beginning of the book that this did start out as a dissertation or a dissertation related work, at least before it came out as a book manuscript, um, and eventually as this very beautiful um, book that we're talking about today. So can you talk a little bit about that transition? How did you move from the graduate project to um, the book, the the form of the book as we have it now? Were there any major elements um, that required rethinking? Were there any major changes, anything that kind of surprised you in the course of the process? Or was it relatively straightforward? Sure. That's a a good question. Um, I mean, I think for everybody, it's a slightly different process. Um, for me, I think one of the challenges of turning the, the dissertation into the book is is the interdisciplinary nature of the study. Um, and so, you know, as I've already alluded to, um, it, you know, I, I, I am a literary person, that's my training, but it also is, is partly urban history and um, sort of architectural in, in a sense. Um, and I so I think I found what I most had to do uh, what, uh, to turn it into a book was make the the interdisciplinary nature of it uh, clear to me and and sort of you know clarify why uh, why the literary 
made sense with urban history and what that what that particular conjunction was doing. Um, uh, but along the way, it also made me uh, realise that because I was talking about developmentalism as both a kind of ideological project and a spatial project for these three sites, um, South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore, um, I really had to do a lot of research on uh, the sort of economic debates behind third world development sort of in the mid-century. And that was a completely new field to me, you know, in addition to the other parts that, that make up the project. Um, so I did, I did a fair bit of study around, you know, going back to the debates from the 70s about third world development models, um, export-oriented export industrialisation versus uh, import substitution and things like that, um, and looking at work by Andre Gunder Frank and Samira Bin and people that I, I probably wouldn't have read in, you know, in my own uh, field. Uh, so that was one thing that helped me kind of um, frame the project more clearly as a as what I've what I've described as kind of a spatial history of the developmental post-colonial state, um, and I think you know in other terms I think like like everybody there was simply just a lot of uh, you know reshuffling and restructuring and rewriting, uh, but I think for me the most important thing was was figuring out the the kind of um, interdisciplinary. Uh, juggling act that <laughs> that I was doing. Well, this, um, if you don't mind, that's actually something that I'd love to hear more from you about, because one of the things that's so wonderful and so striking and so um, stimulating and, and frankly inspiring about the book is, is exactly this transdisciplinary mode of writing and mode of research um, that you're giving us here. It's, it's very, um, it's, it's frankly very inspiring, as, as I've, I've just said, because it's probably not unlikely that some of our listeners or certainly um, some of our students, some of our colleagues are going to perhaps at the stage of moving from dissertation to book be struck by a similar desire, maybe not in this particular field, but perhaps in, in different fields, to incorporate material from a discipline that they're not trained in, right? Or perhaps even those of us going from our first book to a second book, it's often the case that once you're out of the context of formal graduate training, um, it, it, that desire to still educate ourselves doesn't stop. And in fact, it can be really challenging when you're educating yourself um, for the purpose of new published work. So can you talk a little bit about how you undertook that process? Did you, was this largely getting recommendations from people and reading on your own? Was there anything that kind of helped you um, instrumentally in helping you develop this, frankly, very impressive background in the kinds of disciplinary training that you brought to the book, but that you may not have had in the dissertation sort of mode of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding the um, what I was just talking about, the the economic side of it, or yeah, the yeah, whatever sure. side of it, um, sure. Let's mm. say the economic side of it, or whatever side of it um, that you want to talk about that you incorporated in the in the course of turning this into a book. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that is the challenge for a lot of us. You know, once as you say, once we leave the kind of formal. Uh, uh, you know, structure of, of a graduate school where you're given um, fields to study in, and so all of a sudden you're sort of you know let on, let out, and you know the, the world the world becomes boundless in terms of um, possible research topics. Um, for me, for I, I suppose because I knew um, I had a fairly uh, focused 
idea of what I needed to fill in for the project, which was um, going back to the sort of developmental debates, um, you know, mostly from the from the, about the 1970s and 80s. Um, so it was for me, it was really about sort of educating myself and putting together, you know, a sort of a personal reading list or syllabus for my for my own uh, little, you know. Um, educational project and just uh, working through that. Um, and, of course, you know, in the way that that always works, you know, a footnote here leads you to another book there and, and so on and so on. Um, I was lucky enough to have um, a semester of junior leave when I was revising the, the book and I, I went back to Australia for that. Um, and in a way I found that also a sort of a nice... Um, a nice way that I was sort of both out out of out of you know American academia for a time. I was kind of back in my hometown, uh, which gave me a bit of a fresh perspective. And I do recommend that to anybody who is you know wanting to uh, you know really really take a fresh look of at their dissertation when turning into book. I really recommend a, a change of scenery. <laughs> it definitely helped me. Um, so for for that. For that, I feel like I was fairly, uh, I had a kind of a uh, fairly focused um, uh, goal in terms of filling a, a gap in my own knowledge. For the larger uh, interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary problem, which is the spatial and the literary, um, that has taken me, you know, quite a few years to work through. I um, um, I was lucky enough when I was in graduate school to have Frederick Jameson as one of my teachers, and he, a couple with a couple of other students, we put together a, uh, a reading group on theories of space and architecture, um, which he would would sometimes come to, um, and that was really wonderful. So we managed to sort of um, put together. Um, you know, our own little syllabus and, and focused group for that. Um, but I've since, you know, tried to teach my own versions of classes like that to my own students. Um, so I think, you know, although we're always an amateur in these things, um, teaching something is also a great way to, to, to get a handle on a, on a new field or a new subfield that we're, you know, we're not already trained in. Absolutely. I don't know if I should say that. My students are probably, you know, that's probably, you know, they're probably thinking, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a case for me too. So we can share in the, uh, the admissions there. And sorry, students. Um, <laughs> so this, this is actually a great time to get into the, the real meat of the book itself. Mm. So as you've already mentioned, the book looks at um, the histories and fictional representations of urban transformation in three sites or at three sites or in three case studies. Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan, and the time period stretches from the colonial period to the late 1980s. Now, you mention in the book that these are three of the Pacific Rim's in newly industrializing countries. So can you talk about this uh, choice of these three case studies for a moment? Why did you choose these three sites in particular, and um, how did this comparative framework come about? Mm. Uh, well, I chose them. I mean, I, I guess what I had... Um, what I, I think I didn't realize when I first started looking at these three sites was that they they already are a kind of regional block in in the in the field of modernization studies, which, as I said, you know, was something that I, I sort of had to um, uh, teach myself a bit about along the way. Um, so, you know, they're commonly known as the the Asian tigers or the Asian miracle economies. Um, and basically, what was interesting to me was, you know, why 
why did these places develop so successfully as, you know, uh, in the post-war period um, and in terms of, you know, especially in comparative terms against other post-colonial sites. Um, uh, and having lived in um, both Seoul and Taipei for a while and, and, and visiting Singapore, um, it struck me that, you know, these were, there was something very sort of interesting about these cities and about the way that um, modernity had arrived here, you know, the incredible density, um, the newness, the apparent newness of them, um, you know, the sort of liveliness. And these are sorts of, you know, common things that, um, you know, you know, that, that uh, architectural magazines, you know, write about and things like that. Um, so what I wanted to know was, you know, well, what, what, what would a study of these places look like if we took into account uh, their their history as a post-colonial one? Um, you know, what, is, what does it matter that Seoul and Taipei were both, you know, important cities in the Japanese Empire um, up until the end of... Um, um, the Second World War, and Singapore was an important trading post for the British uh, until their independence. Um, so really, I think the, the regionalization, um, and I do mention in the introduction, actually, that Hong Kong also uh, usually belongs with the other three in terms of modernization and um, economic studies um, as, as part of the, the kind of Asian tiger phenomenon. Um, but for, for reasons of, their, of Hong Kong's quite distinct colonial and post-colonial history, I, I didn't include Hong Kong with the rest of them. Um, but I do think, you know, what basically what I was doing here is sort of taking the regionalization from modernization studies, um, but looking at it in terms of literary production from a post-colonial perspective. Now, you've mentioned already the um, very briefly the importance of the notion of development or developmentalism. And this is very crucial for the book. Um, you mention in the book, you explain that cities in the places that you have um, chosen to focus on for the purpose of the book embody, and I think I'm almost using your words here, but maybe I'll paraphrase, a new model of development where the city is first and foremost uh, conceived as a production platform for producing various kinds of things, values, bodies, national subjects, and less as a site of traditional kind of civic, ceremonial, or economic transactions. Now, since this seems to be such a crucial point for the book, and because listeners um, who come at this may not be familiar with development studies or this idea of, or ideas of developmentalism that have inspired the way you're looking at this, can you talk a little bit about this notion of development or developmentalism as it is used um, in the book here and as you are employing it to study these cities? Mm, okay, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I should say... Um, Developmentalism. I mean, I guess if we wanted to define it, it's it's um, uh, usually perceived as a, a state-led project of uh, of modernization, industrialization, and development. Um, and in the sort of broad scheme of um, post-war. Uh, post-war uh, history, I guess, um, 
the post-colonial or third world, you know, was the, the block of the world that, you know, was supposed to develop, right? They, you know, they were considered behind, um, you know, newly liberated from the uh, after colonization. Um, so basically this was a task for a lot of third world and post-colonial nations that they needed to develop. And developmentalism is kind of the idea whereby, you know, the state is what will, you know, uh, produce development and modernity, um, you know, in this in this sort of catch-up model. Um, so that's sort of, you know, just broadly what we're what we're talking about. What I'm interested in is is looking at developmentalism, um, both as uh, as a more as a broader phenomenon than simply one that has to do with the, the economy or, or industry or industrialization. It's one that has to do with um, historical legacies, with um, cultural changes, with social changes, with you know gender, you know rehire. Hierarchizations, um, and also that it's uh, it's often in the places that I look at, it's a post-colonial uh, process too. So it, it really has to do with um, the perspective that um, these places, you know, were not developed enough. They had to catch up. There is a, a sort of a teleology to that development, um, what it looks like, um, etc. Um, and then, but I but I wanted to what I wanted to sort of showcase in this book, though, is that the way these countries developed um, was, in fact, uh, does, in fact, sort of tread new ground. Um, And by that, I'm I'm specifically talking about the export-oriented industrialization of South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and also Hong Kong. Um, And in in, uh, one of the early sections in the uh, first transition in the book, um, I really go back and sort of look at the origins of export-oriented uh, production, um, especially the invention of the uh, export production zone or EPZ or um, you know industrial industrial zones, free trade zones that are that are now so common. Um, and actually, these are the places that sort of first uh, use them to um, you know to get their sort of leg up in the. Um, uh, uh, in terms of development, um, but that it you know that. I think what's what's interesting is that we need to be reminded that these were this was in fact a novel way to develop um, coming out of uh, the, the Second World War. Um, it wasn't an automatic thing. Whereas today, when we look at say industrializing China and India, we think, well, this is the obvious way to develop. Um, but in fact, I you know what I'm arguing is that you know it's actually that these new Asian cities, this sort of earlier generation of new Asian cities that I'm looking at, um, that sort of uh, fine-tuned this this kind of export-led development and that that has a lot to do with um, the way these these nations um, saw themselves as coming out of um, um, the colonial period. Does that make sense? That was a, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Now, these are all issues that might be familiar to readers who... Um, or this might make it sound to listeners that this is a book that's solely about economic theory or sort of urban. Right. Industry. I was just worrying about that. I was thinking, <laughs> no, no. This is what it sounds like. No, no. This is actually one of the really interesting things is that the book, um, e- e- and this I think speaks to the phenomenon we were talking about earlier, and that is the radical transdisciplinarity of this book. The book manages at the same time to give a very sophisticated account of these larger economic and political issues, but also, let's remember, it's a book about fiction and literary forms. And so these um, this understanding of uh, sort of urban transformations and economic development and developmentalism is used to 
create a series of really interesting readings of the ways that these transformations manifest in and produce particular forms of fictional texts. So the, the ensuing chapters that we'll talk about, or we'll talk about as, as many of them as we can, take these issues as a baseline. And these issues for readers are worked out in um, very helpful conceptual ways in a series of two transitions positioned in the book that sort of acts as uh, really foundations for the chapters that follow them. But it uses this as a kind of foundation to produce some really interesting readings of several different kinds of um, fictional media, poems, films, uh, fiction pieces, and even this, at the end of the book, speeches um, by uh, sort of key leaders in this history. So um, this is so. Let's let's get to that right now. So this is ultimately, I think, a book that's also going to be um, obviously very fascinating to people who are interested in and who work primarily in literary studies. So let's move to this. Okay, um, but so as we get into part one of the book, the first chapter, this is um, part one is called Colonial Cities. Now, before we actually get to the nitty gritty of the literary studies, though, chapter one really sets up a conceptual base for the rest of the book by tracing colonial urban development. So this is a, a period that comes before the last two parts of the book in historical and in theoretical terms. Okay. It looks at the ways that colonial cities, like the cities we've been talking about, have been theorized in terms of global modernity, imperialism, and capitalism. So this really sets, it gives us tools that we can use to read the literary accounts and the films that come later. Okay. So one of the major concepts in this chapter um, that is super important and that readers or listeners may not have been familiar with before coming to this is the concept of the Manichaean city. Uh, so can you explain for listeners what is a Manichaean city and what work is that doing in the context of this chapter and these issues? Mm. Um, so I use that uh, that expression, the Manichaean city, really drawing that from Franz Fanon and his work in The Wretched of the Earth, describing Algiers as as uh, sort of the the original Manichaean city, I guess. Um, of course, um, Algeria being under a French colonial rule, um, and he gives this wonderfully rich um, um, and vibrant, I mean, uh, a kind of vital description of the the colonial city as being one that is split in two okay so manichaean being you know a dual a dualistic system one of dark and light and for him this is you know epitomized by the colonial city where half uh is the you know residential sector for the european colonial uh colonizers um it's a city of light and brightness um and material wealth and um plenitude and the other half uh, is the city of the natives and he calls it you know the medina or the um the city of niggers you know all these other expressions that he uses so basically this and and in different ways we can see you know the colonial city has existed in in uh, or, or the manichaean colonial city has existed in different versions around the world um where some parts of the city will be for the settlers um, and some parts will be for the natives. And there's also, there's many variations too, you know, um, for say in the British case in Singapore, um, you know, there were actually ethnically divided sections of the city that, um, you know, that, that, you know, were sort of spatially, um, you know, regulated. Um, 
So the the work that that concept does really is just to show is really showing how a city, the architectural forms of a city, become can become sort of the interpretive image for a larger social uh, and economic uh, imperialist system. Okay, so it's you know, and I'm that term. Uh, interpretive image is, is one that I draw from Raymond Williams um, and his wonderful book, um, The Country and the City. Um, so so I think in this chapter what I'm trying to do is sort of set up um, a way of reading spatial forms that is not just, doesn't just see architectural forms and urban forms as uh, neutral um, and static. I mean, really, they are the product and they are the ongoing sort of activated forms of certain ide- ideologies, um, of relationships, um, of social systems that go into sort of producing and maintaining themselves. So um, it's, um, you know, what I like to, I like to, you know, I also, and I also draw a lot on Henri Lefebvre in the book, um, the, the great French uh, Marxist philosopher of space, um, who describes, and he describes space always as not a thing, but a set of relationships. So that's the way I also want to think about colonial cities, um, the way their urban forms manifest themselves. Um, they're not simply, um, you know, just objects in space. They're they're actively maintaining social social segregation um, and imperial systems themselves. So that's sort of the kind of work that going through Fanon and Lefebvre, um, this idea of, of uh, the mannequin colonial city does for me. Great. Now, you've mentioned um, already a number of theorists who have been very uh, instrumental in helping you come up with these ideas that are in the book and... Um, theorists whose work has been formative for you. One of the things that you do in this chapter is you consider what a post-colonial perspective and a perspective that's rooted in studies of these East and Southeast Asian cities might give or sort of how it might transform existing debates or perhaps existing theoretical literature that we draw from in looking at these kinds of phenomena. So this is one of the things that I'd like love to ask you about. So how does considering, and granted, this is a big question, mm-hmm. but um, and then, you know, if you have any reflections on this, how does considering these particular kinds of case studies, these post-colonial cities in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, how does this inform or perhaps change the way we think about the kinds of contributions that are made by the kinds of thinkers um, that you have mentioned that we typically use to think about these kinds of issues of space and cities and um, sort of production of relationships therein. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the, the thinking about um, space and, and urban studies and, and theories of the urban, um, what I found... What I found lacking was often an attention to the colonial and the post-colonial, which you know was, as we know, is um, you know a vast, a vast omission. Um, in, in the sense that a lot of narratives um, about modernity that talk about urbanization and, and urban theories um, simply always take Paris or London as their um, you know uh, sort of the the archetypal examples and the normative models of, of growth and development. Um, and I didn't also, also I didn't, 
I, I don't. I'm sort of not a big subscriber into the kind of alternative modernities debates as, or theory, where you know, where, you know, where we might see you know a, a, a Seoul or a Beijing as kind of variants on that. What I really wanted to do was was um, look at these unfoldings of space in colonial cities as an integral part of the modernity of the West as well. Um, so, of course, this is, you know, it's not a particularly new uh, discovery, but simply to say that, you know, the colonialism that, um, you know, was a, is an integral part of modernity. You know, it's, it's sort of the, the dark side of modernity, to use Walter Mignolo's um, sort of fertile phrase. Um, so I think that looking at C's uh, in, say, uh, East and Southeast Asia that were important colonial cities um, and then sort of follow their development. Um, it's not simply giving us an alternative to, oh, oh this is another way that, you know, urban centres can develop. It's also uh, showing us what we didn't know about uh, one one part of the story of Western development as well, that this was also, you know, for example, you know, Singapore has... Uh, or, you know, the, the sort of greater British Empire, you know, that, of course, contributes to, uh, you know, London's development in, in, all, these, in all these ways. Um, and that's something I, I um, draw on Anthony King's work a lot and his, his study um, of uh, British Indian cities and Delhi in particular. Uh, yeah, does that... Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then you sort of, at the end of the chapter, I'll just mention for um, listeners... You describe two different kinds of colonial cities, so two different forms of uh, colonial urban space, administrative and gateway cities. And you sort of talk about the distinction and um, explain why this is important for the work mm-hmm. that you're doing here. Now, after in this chapter we set up these basic um, conceptual uh, grounds and we talk about the kinds of ideas about urban space and colonial space um, that form the foundation for the study we move to specific cases um, that you're looking at in this um, in the three sites that the book focuses on. So this chapter looks at the ways that colonial literature assimilates and also talks back to the modern urban forms that were just discussed in the chapter before. Mm-hmm. Now, this chapter um, really explores how a kind of, as you put it here, blatant discrepancy between the metropole and a colony, metropolitan space and colonial space, is staged in colonial writing. So let's talk about that um, and some of these examples of it. Now, you say, um, one of the things that you say in this chapter that's very striking is that the colonial city is inherently a contradiction. It's neither metropolitan nor colonial, but it It is that which produces the distinction, okay? And I'm being very careful with the phrasing here because I think it's very um, crucial to the work that's being done here. Can you talk about that um, a little bit? Mm. Right. So so drawing on what we were just talking about with the Manichaean city and the way that it's a kind of a, a, a... a dual system. What I, the way I describe that is that it, it's an urban form that demands misrecognition, um, and that's what I mean, sort of by discrepant. So that in some parts of it, you will, you know, say, in um, going, going back to Franz Fanon's case, you might mistake yourself for an area of Paris when, in fact, you're in Algiers. Um, um, and the same thing happening, you can, we can see happening in places like um, Singapore. 
colonial Singapore or colonial Seoul. Um, so some parts of Singapore look like, you know, they have all the, the, the sort of the wonderful, you know, British colonial architecture. They they look like, a, a, you know, a, a wealthy up, upper class suburb of London, whereas other parts, you know, you have the... Um, incredibly congested shop houses and, you know, um, which dominating, dominated by coolie labor and that sort of thing. Um, so what I'm, what I'm sort of interested in, in this chapter is getting, talking about the way that the urban forms themselves of colonial cities are these contradictory, um, spatial oddities that they, they bring parts of the colonizing country, uh, colonizing culture and its architectural forms. Um, they produce new forms altogether. Um, so especially in the case of Singapore, which sort of was um, kind of uh, invented as a, as a trading post. Um, uh, and the description, the literary description of these sort of forces, uh, you know, the narrator to sort of make account of these sort of, you know, clashing uh, forms and ideologies. And I think that's sort of what this chapter is trying to, to talk about. So with the um, uh, the, the two narratives, Man Sejon and um, Orphan of Asia, uh, they both sort of look at the way these uh, contradictory forms of the colonial city become narrative objects which then, you know, propel a kind of understanding of the colonial and imperial system. Um, and also I just wanted to mention, um, you know, the case of colonial Taipei and Seoul, there's also a sort of a further interesting layer, which is, of course, and I, and I talk about this, is that, the, of course, the, the Japanese um, didn't, uh, they they often built their colonial administrative buildings in European style. So you sort of get this triangulated colonialism um, that's that's not simply you know that that you know the, the the house of the governor general is going to sort of emit a Japanese-ness. It's actually going to emit a kind of uh, generic European colonial. Um, authority. Okay, so that's you know I think that's also a, a, a sort of a, an interesting fact of um, the way that Japan became a colonizer, but very much in the model of, of Western colonialism. Now you just mentioned two works that you focus on um, in the chapter, um, Man Sejong and Orphan of Asia, and there's also another work you mentioned here, Isang's The Wings. Mm-hmm. The chapter opens with um, Man Sejong. Can you talk? Can you introduce that work for listeners and talk a little bit about why that's important in the context of this chapter? Right. So, um, so uh, Im's work, uh, Man Sejong, is, is generally considered one of the first sort of substantial realist novels in the in in Korean literature. Um, and the title Man Sejong is literally before the hoorays. So it's and actually referring to the March 1919 movement, which was a sort of big uprising against the Japanese colonizers. Um, but in fact, the novel itself is is a, is a fairly um, uh, autobiographical, or it comes across as an autobiographical tale of, of an overseas student um, who has been studying in Tokyo and has to come back to Korea to uh, to attend to his ailing wife, um, and the story is is sort of a travel, partly a travelogue of how he returns back um, 
you know, takes the ferry from Japan to Busan and then takes the train up um, to Seoul. Um, and he's witnessing all these changes, all these um, physical material changes to Korea, to colonial Korea that's, that's, that's happening under the, under the Japanese. Um, and it is precisely, again, this sort of um, contradictory spaces. So he sees the increase in development, um, higher built, taller buildings, um, increased um, commercialism. But at the same time, he also sees increased poverty by you know, the Koreans who are pushed off their land, um, a new kind of urban um, pro- proletariat or, um, you know, lumpen proletariat. Um, so it's, it's through that sort of experience of, of the, the discrepancy again between what he's, what he's experienced in the metropole, which is Tokyo, um, but also coming back to Seoul and seeing um, parts of that Japanese um, kind of consumer culture and modernity alongside the impoverishment of local Koreans that, that produces this sort of, um, a sort of incipient nationalism. Um, and did you want me to talk about the other text? Um, sure, I was actually going to ask you about that right now. So, okay, <laughs> sure. So, um, so, so Wu's um, The Orphan of Asia, that's, that's often also um, called the kind of first Taiwanese novel, and that's also um, drew, um, um, quite, uh, quite autobiographical as well. Um, and uh, and I think you know in that um, in that novel the the protagonist is sort of shuttling between Taiwan, Japan, and mainland China, and of course the orphan of Asia is is he's sort of you know. Um, uh, is, is what he calls Taiwan. Taiwan kind of belongs to neither. It's kind of, you know, in between this sort of orphan, orphan island. Um, and, uh, in that, in that text as well, we can, you know, we see similar, um, descriptions of changing spaces and urban and modernization of Taiwan's, uh, villages and towns becoming both more modern uh, and also more Western in, in a lot of cases. Um, and yet because of his travels back and forth, you know, he sees the same time this, um, um, you know, the, the, uh, the way that the Taiwanese are becoming, you know, have become second-class citizens under the Japanese. Um, so it produces, again, this sort of um, uh, a sense of the injustice of, of colonialism, but, but I think most powerfully through the actual urban changes that he witnesses. Um, and what I talk about there is, you know, it's, it seems it's less so the Japanese characters themselves, and in fact he has a couple of very good Japanese friends, um, but more about, you know, what... What, what happens when these fundamental sort of changes to space uh, happen all around him, you know, and that produce, you know, a few uh, um, kind of, you know, native elites um, like his brother who sort of, you know, becomes, um, you know, wants to become, you know, uh, J- Japanese in every way, including, you know, re- readjusting his house. Um, and then the local sort of lo- other Taiwanese who don't, you know, who... Um, were simply sort of pushed out um, and impoverished. Now, from um, after these two chapters, you give us a transition, and like I've said, there are two transitions in the book that set up um, the material that's going to come after. The book is separated into three parts. So moving from part one to part two, 
we also move to a different period and a different set of concerns. Part two is concerned with how the individual and how different individuals are reconceptualized, reimagined against the background of a new prod- production-oriented city, as you as you mentioned here. And this is part. Uh, this sort of exists in conjunction with part three of the book, as both parts of this book look at the post-war period. So now we're moving to the mid-1960s um, to the mid-1980s, which was a time of really intense industrialization, intense urbanization in these cities that you're looking at as the case studies of the book. Chapter 3 um, and Chapter 4, which are the two chapters of Part 2, each look at uh, the reimagining of individuals in different ways. And we have kind of an, an exteriorization and an interiorization um, in these two different chapters, looking at two different sets of cases. Chapter 3 looks at the ways that the body and the building were related, were conflated, were enmeshed in stories that dealt with the new proletariat, which was moving around and living and existing in factories and construction sites and in apartment blocks of the city. Now, you focus in this chapter on sort of elements of the dimensionality of the city that manifest in new ways, and this was very striking. So you you mentioned the importance here of height, of density, and of constant reconstruction. Can you talk about that as as it is important for the work that you're doing in this chapter? Hmm. Sure. Um, first of all, I should say that um, you know you're right to characterize the the temporal shift in these the two second sections of the book, and I just wanted to comment on that um, just to say that the first section I think um, you know wants to sort of uh, lay out the way that spatial transformations in the colonial period contribute to what we see in the post-colonial and the post-war period. Um, but also I just wanted to point out, you know, that I, I, um, I do skip over what some people think are the most interesting times. Um, I, I skip over the, um, the actual moments, of, you know, the end of Japanese rule. Um, I, you know, I go through the history very briefly. But my focus is really in the second two sections in the bulk of the book, which is, you know, the, the, the next, um, I guess, five chapters of the book, um, really about uh, what, uh, what is happening in the post-colonial states and, and their attempts to uh, develop and modernise um, as, um, as independent entities and sort of, you know, and how they uh, approach that uh, that task from a subordinated position, you know, coming from being a, um, an ex-colony. So just to say that that's, you know, just to point out that the book is, although it starts by looking at the colonial period in some detail, my my focus in a sense is really from the 60s to the 80s following that. Um, okay, so sorry. And so your question was about the... Um, the dimensionality um, in the in chapter three is that sorry. Sure. Just... So 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 I'll actually rephrase it a little. This um, this chapter seems to be about growth and building mm. and sort of dimensionality in a lot of different forms, both at the level of built spaces and mm. also at the level of the the building of a kind of individual. And in mm. fact, maybe this is a better way to put it. You you actually talk about building and construction. Um, and this, these dimensions in different ways in the book, but one of the things, or in this chapter, but one of the conceptual moves that you make here that's really important in linking these two kinds of ways of thinking about growth and building of the individual is to analyze the texts in this section. Um, we look at Korean, Singaporean, and Taiwanese short fiction in this section in terms of a Bildungsroman form. Mm. 
Um, so can you, perhaps that's um, that's a better question to ask. Can you talk a little bit about that and about the kind of, um, the importance of the Bildungsroman form here and the larger issues in this chapter of kind of building and construction and, and the way those ramify at the level of the bodies of buildings and the bodies of individuals? Mm-hmm. Right, great, great question. I, yeah, what, what was so interesting to me about this period, both in terms of the urban history and the literary history, is this question of growth. Uh, this de- the 60s and 70s in particular in, in all three places uh, uh, are the decades of massive urban renewal going on. Um, uh, you know, in the case of Singapore, you have um, approximately 90% of the urban st- housing stock being replaced by high-rise apartments. Um, not quite so high high ratio in Seoul and Taipei, but but at the same time, you know, a lot of rebuilding, reconstruction. Um, of course, a lot of Seoul had to be rebuilt after the war. Um, so what was fascinating to me in the literature was seeing how this, you know, the, the narratives of uh, protagonists who who are uh, experiencing this unbelievable change in their built environment. Um, you know, at the same time, this this I, um, this is the moment when the economies are taking off. Okay, so you you know the the export oriented pressure, the pressure to sort of pr- um, to to grow and produce for for um, export markets. Um, and what I found was, you know, uh, um, a range of texts also dealing with youth. And so, of course, we know, you know, from the traditional European buildings roman model that, you know, presents youth as a kind of new uh, and distinctive problem for modernity. Okay, so you no longer, are, you know, are simply follow your, your, your father's footsteps or, or um, um, you know, do exactly what your family uh, tradition has has in store for you. So the problem of modernity is a problem of youth because you know you have this um, uh, um, moment of you know entering out into the world and then you know as as Franco Moretti famously describes you know um, you have to sort of be reincorporated uh, re- into the social world in a way that both uh, is you know suits the individual as well as the kind of social expectations. Um, so the the chapter really explores this problem of youth and growth, um, and for in these cases, what I'm arguing is that you know the buildings roman form is going to look somewhat different when you have the individual uh, against this rapidly changing and growing urban environment. Um, um, and what was interesting to me was was the way the different texts kind of figure bodies and buildings in relationship to each other. The use of metonymy. Um, was was very pronounced um, bodies, um, you know, becoming buildings, falling into buildings, um, jumping off buildings. Um, that seems to be a, a kind of recurring theme in in the book. Um, the question of standardization and seriality and serialization when you get these sort of monotonous high rise apartment buildings, um, and so the shift from uh, you know sort of village life or um, communal life in in different spatial forms. Um, so and then. Uh, um, I guess the other aspect of that chapter, what it's also trying to do is sort of articulate a kind of distinctive uh, dimensionality to this to these cities that you can 
perceive through these literary texts. Um, in, in contrast to the sort of usual dimensions of the Western urbanism that we're familiar from, from urban theorists like um, Weber or Spangler. Um, so, and that's where I sort of start talking about the uh, dimensionality of compression um, um, and of the sort of concentricity of, of, um, of the cities. Great. And there are some wonderful examples in this chapter too that I'm not going to ask you to talk about because mm-hmm. there's so much more in the book, but I'll just highlight um, for listeners that there are some really wonderful cases um, here that are fascinating, especially this a little ball launched by a dwarf story. Um, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. go, moving from chapter three to chapter four, we move from sort of the exterior built spaces into an interior kind of context. And we we look, come to the role of women in this story. Um, chapter four in particular looks at the role of the interior space and private interior space in framing, as you put it, the disappearing female subject in works by three authors. Can you talk a little bit about um, how how this plays out in at least one of these works? What do you mean by the disappearing female subject here? And can you t- um, talk about one of the works, either A Room in the Woods, Missing, or Rice Bowl, in a way that um, makes this manifest? Mm, right. Well, here, I mean, this is sort of the the companion chapter to the one that talks about the you know the the problem of youth and the the growing city, in that it really takes the other perspective from the interior, as you say. Um, and what I was interested in here is how the the constellation of um, a, a, a big shift in um, society in in these societies at the time was the sort of mass exodus of women to go to work in factories. So a lot of the original um, uh, sort of the you know the leap in industry came from uh, young women working in textile and electronic industries um, in in all three of these sites. Um, so while that was sort of a major social shift, um, you also get the shift to a new kind of um, pr- uh, private space that comes about with the the individual sort of room. Um, inside, you know, uh, and the shift to kind of Western style um, high rise apartments. Um, so, what I was interested in the way that these women's fiction um, address, I guess, the, the, the changing hierarchization of genders um, that has to do with uh, that, that uh, plays itself out through a shift in um, uh, spatial arrangements of public and private. So basically, you know, it's a, it's about how public and private are changing, both in terms of labour and in terms of um, domestic uh, living arrangements. Um, and what I mean by the disappearing woman is that in several, and as I as I talk about in the chapter in um, across these texts, we find uh, women who uh, don't seem to occupy any any particular space properly that they're always sort of transient they're at the edges um they are uh not at home in any of the places these sort of newly productive places of the city so even though um a lot of young women were really integral for the sort of export takeoff industrial takeoff of these places um their labor was really considered um, subordinate because it was, it, you know, they were not expected to work after they were married. Um, so, you know, it was usually sort of teenage um, or early 20s women who were, who were working in factories and then expected to, to go back to the home. Um, so it's not the case that, um, 
you know, the, the entry into the workforce produces a kind of um, uh, demand for, you know, equal rights and, you know, things like that. Um, at the same time, the expectation for women, you know, to, to be, to serve the nation and serve through the family, you know, remained very strong. Um, so, um, so for example, in Kang Sok Yong's work, A Room in the Woods, um, it's about one sister, uh, a family and one sister who was really in search of her other sister who seems to have, um, um, you know, mysteriously sort of withdrawn from the family. Um, and, and what I, what I was interested in there is this very interesting textual structure where it's almost like, um, the novel or the novella is, um, structured as a detective story. So one sister is pursuing the traces of the other. What we figure out by, you know, via, uh, via her search, um, is sort of the attempt by the other character, the sister to find, uh, an appropriate location where she can, where, where she can be. And she's, you know, both in the workplace, uh, in the sort of student protests environments. This is, um, in the 1980s in, in, uh, Seoul, um, uh, in the home, um, and, you know, uh, the way that, that their new, um, kind of spatial living environment also inflects that search for the place for femininity. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we move from part two to part three of the book, the final part of the book, and this transition is also marked by a, a formal named transition on roads, rail, railways, and bridges, arteries of the nation. And the name of this transition really signals um, the changing focus of uh, as we move to this last part of the book. Part three of the book moves from individuals, as we were just talking about, to collectivities. And it moves to these collectivities in the context of the nation space as a productive space, but a, a space that focuses on linking of regions by networks of transportation, transportation and movement of goods and of bodies. So here we have um, a larger scale. We have collectivities and we have a focus on movement of goods and bodies. The three chapters constituting this part each explore in detail one of the cities that you look at in the book. And so not only does it focus on a particular city, a particular site, but also a representative aesthetic genre. So we look here in these chapters at poems, we look at cinema, and we look at popular literature. Okay, um, so let's turn for a moment. We, um, we probably won't have time to talk about all of them, but this is a really interesting section, so let's at least get to some of it. Um, chapter 5 looks at Singapore, and it analyzes Singapore's official nationalism as articulated by Lee Kuan Yew, okay? in contrast to anti-nationalistic poems by Edwin Thumbu and Arthur Yap. So to set this up for listeners, can you introduce um, Lee Kuan Yew and talk a little bit about his ideas, and then sort of we can maybe talk about how the poems that you're looking at for this chapter um, con contrast or conflict with these, or conflate, or whatever, con something. <laughs> Are right. interestingly different. <laughs> we should have a um, yeah, a little store of, of words like that: contrast, conflict, contrast, con exactly. complicate. Yeah. Are different somehow in a way that makes them worth writing about. So can right. You, can exactly. you talk about chapter five? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I have to say, chapter five, I think, is my favorite chapter, and in fact, this final section of the book. Um, 
is was the most fun to write. Um, what I what I really enjoyed doing was going going and looking at the speeches and writings of the three authoritarian leaders, all quite different and interesting in their own way. Um, but Lee Kuan Yew uh, was was an is an incredible figure to to engage with, and of course, um, you know, he's written a couple of very lengthy uh, order memoirs, which are, which are fun to read. Um, so what I what I was interested in, and what I do in all three of these chapters is really look at the way that the the political speeches and writings of these uh, of the three individuals try to articulate a kind of destiny of their nation's de- development and progress um, through uh, through built form uh, and in particular infrastructural development. Um, so you know that means that Lee Kuan Yew he loved talking about um, improving roads. Um, and highways, um, long ones, um, making sure, you know, roundabouts were working properly. Um, and this was all in the service of impressing international guests who were going to bring investment to Singapore. So for him, you know, this idea of um, the way ahead was, you know, uh, um, the way the way forward for Singapore in terms of, you know, um, make, being a successful uh, manufacturing and export uh, country uh, um, uh, industry, um, but also sort of Literally, it was the you know the road from um, you know the airport to his office where foreign dignitaries would have to pass through, and then they would you know see the see the landscape, see how orderly it was. So, so Lee Kuan Yew, perhaps more than the other leaders, um, really had an obsession about keeping Singapore clean and orderly. And you know these are these are sort of the stereotypes we have of the city. What uh, the poets do and the the poetic reinscriptions of these spaces do, I think, is really complicate that story in a, in a wonderful way. Um, the chapter also looks at the work of Edwin Thumbu, but Arthur Yap's work, I think, is um, is, is really wonderful um, and uh, and somewhat bizarre. I mean, his poetry is um, is sort of non, non-realistic, um, very playful, um, and what he does with the city is really, you know, use the, the forms of uh, urban renewal, um, uh, infrastructural development, um, and he sort of uses them and describes them in a way that kind of arrests and puts on display the ideologies of developmentalist logic. So he's, you know, for example, he talks about in one poem the um, renewal of a large imagination. So, of course, we think of renewal in terms of urban renewal, which Singapore is so famous for. But, you know, he sort of turns that around and says, well, what if we think about renewal as um, renewal of of the imagination? Or what if we think about... um, you know, a kind of urban landscape is somehow being um, being organic. Um, so, what I like about his work is that he's not, um, you know, he's not merely incorporating forms of the city into his poetry as they exist. He's really questioning the logic of their uh, orderliness and sort of development-oriented um, existence. You know, he wants to constantly challenge that. Um, so that. Um, um, so that was, you know, one of the reasons why I, I enjoyed working on that chapter. Great. Now, the last two chapters of the book before the conclusion um, include material that's also really fascinating, really important, but that because I don't want to take up too much of your time, we don't have time to talk about in detail. But what I do want to do just very briefly is ask you, um, chapter six is on mobility and migration in Taiwanese new cinema. 
looks at tropes of migration and transportation, again, um, focusing on these major themes of part three of movement of goods and movement of people. Is there something in particular about that chapter and the material here um, that you feel is particularly exciting or important or was um, was um, particularly challenging or exciting for you that you want to mention for listeners? Mm. Um, I think what's what was um, sort of fun and, and challenging in that chapter was actually talking about cinema. And it's, as I, of course, we I've mentioned I'm I'm trained in literary studies primarily, um, but I love Ho Xiaoxian's cinema. And this chapter also, you know, gave me an opportunity to to write about his work. Um, in a, but I really enjoyed um, the, you know, thinking about his work in formal terms and about how the way, the way that the, the formal aspects of his cinema are an attempt to translate some of the these changes we've been talking about in Taiwanese space um, and tra- translate them for, um, you know, into the, the cinematic medium. What I liked especially um, about his work, um, and I, as I described, are uh, even though he's he's so his work is really about migration i I feel like you know the the theme of migration from the from the country to the city um but what it results in paradoxically is kind of a cinema cinematic aesthetic of extreme stillness and movement um and not in the ways that you expect so you know the in the film um dust in the wind um a lot of the city scenes are marked by extreme immobility whereas um the the country spaces um seem sort of luxuriously open and broad um and you know and then there's sort of a, a formal mechanism that connects them which is the sort of repeated trip um, by train with the, that the characters take. Um, so for me, I think, you know, that was, it was really challenging, but, um, fascinating to think about, um, the way, uh, this, you know, the, the, the changing dynamics between country and city get played out in a formal visual aesthetic in Ho's work. And let's just keep this party going for the final chapter. Chapter 7, let's do the same thing. It looks at Korean popular literature, popular Minjong literature in particular, and focuses on the work of uh, Huang Sok-yong, in particular the elements of um, these problematics in this work that look at issues of productivity and growth of the nation. So um, in a way that you just did for the previous chapter, what aspects of this chapter do you feel are particularly important or inspiring that you want to sort of mention for listeners? Mm. Uh, well, just just quickly, um, Huang Sok-yong's, the, the, the story I talk about by Huang Sok-yong is uh, The Road to Sampo. Um, it's quite a, quite a famous story. Um, and I think the case of South Korea's industrialization is probably the most brutal compared to both Taiwan and Singapore um, because of the military dictatorship um, under Park Chung-hee. Um, and in particular, in that chapter, what I'm interested in is is the sort of literary rendering of the um, the period of the Yushin reforms and the Semal industrialization project, uh, which really transformed a lot of the country. So, so, you know, here I'm not just Talking about you know the changes of in urban form, but really the the whole la- the whole country's landscape becomes uh, industrialized to a certain extent via um, village industrialization programs and uh, new highways and expressways that Park Chung Hee wanted 
you know, to connect the nation into a sort of a productive, uh, smooth running whole. Um, and Huang Sok Young's story is a very poignant story. It talks about um, three characters who are sort of the kinds of new subjects of this um, developmental terrain. Um, one is a prostitute uh, working at a, in a bar next to a military installation, and two are itinerant workers. Um, and so, you know, during this period of, of Korea's history, um, you know, a lot of the construction work was done by itinerant labourers who sort of moved from town to town, you know, whichever town was being um, kind of, you know, reinvigorated through these uh, these programs. Um, so the story is about um, the kind of new forms of community and relationships that, that happen on the road. So, again, that, that theme of on the road. Um, um, and I think, you know, um, the 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 grittiness and the background of this sort of constantly changing and in flux um, countryside and landscape is is what was most fascinating to work on in that in that chapter. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's an exceptionally rich book, and as um, our interview has already shown, there's a ton of material in here um, that is fascinating, but that we didn't have a chance necessarily to talk about. But that I'll I'll mention for listeners because it's it just the radical transdisciplinarity of the book and the richness of the book really make it so inspiring and so interesting and not just on the first reading but on repeated readings frankly um, too and I think this is going to be true for listeners coming at this from a bunch of different fields but that said is there anything in particular about the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about but that you feel is particularly important or that is at least um, even just worth mentioning for listeners who especially those who have not yet had a chance to read um, yeah, I think, well, what uh, I guess one thing that I attempt to do in the book is, you know, and we've been talking about it all along, um, is simply do this comparative project across three different Asian sites um, uh, or cities in particular. Um, and that I, 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 I do think, you know, was a really worthwhile um, goal because I think so many of our um, particularly, you know, often in East Asian studies, we focus on one place in particular um, or, you know, we, we sort of have an in, 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 in implicit comparison um, with the West, with the US or with Europe. Um, what I was really trying to do in this book was was think about the transition to modernity, uh, post-colonial modernity in three sites um, in relation to each other, sites that share a lot in terms of Cold War, in terms of development strategies, um, somewhat in post-colonial histories, but also differ a lot. So I think, you know, perhaps the strength and the weakness of the book is that it does try to do a lot. Um, but what I what I want readers to, to note is also the, uh, the methodological attempt to um, compare kind of horizontally across these three different sides, which I think we, we don't see enough of in East Asian studies in particular. Great. So now that the book is out and, it, and it's been out for a little while, um, what's next for you? What project are you working on now currently that's inspiring or exciting you? Uh, well, I sort of got hooked a little bit on the authoritarianism aspect, in particular, you know, looking at Lee Kuan Yew and Park Chung-hee and Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, it was sort of a fascinating uh, project. So I'm, I'm now working on a, um, a new study. It's tentatively titled Ruling Like a Foreigner um, about post-colonial dictatorships. Um, and, you know, there's unfortunately, but fortunately for my research, there is plenty to draw on. 
Well, best of luck with that project. And again, thank you so much for making the time and for talking with us today. And congratulations on a fantastic book. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.